Well, thank you, Silvana, for your testimony. We praise God and um, honor God for His work in your life. I have a real tender spot in my heart for pastor's children. My wife is a pastor's kid, and Elizabeth is a pastor's kid. So um, we have a soft spot for I know how difficult it is and it can be. And it's just a testimony to God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> that you're persevering as a believer. <clears throat> and I always remember what you shared at the retreat, how you had always wanted to glorify God, but along the way, you lost your way, in a sense, and forgot the importance of how to glorify God. And it was through learning scripture, theology, and doctrine, you discovered the truth that, that obedience is more important than sacrifice. And how to see you, to stand up and say you're wrong, and to say your fiancé is right. I mean, that's a good way to start a you know, relationship, start a marriage, all you folks out there. Um, that was just, that was encouraging, and thank you for that. Also, I want to welcome a special person joining us after a hiatus. Uh, she's actually not here, I think. She's in the nursery. Oh, she's here? Oh, she's outside, taking care of it. It's okay, man. Um, welcome back to Sophie Han. Um, I think about... Um, yeah, let's give her a hand. She's not here, but... Um, four weeks ago, Bob? Five weeks ago, Monday? Five weeks ago, tomorrow. Tuesday, okay. Close enough. <laughs> Five weeks ago, Tuesday, Nolan Robert Hahn was born. And it feels like Sophie was gone for a long time. Like, almost left our fellowship or something. But we saw her last night at the ET graduation. It was so good to see her. So good to see Nolan. Um really sense that she'd come away from a long journey, come back to Cornerstone with a special gift to her family and to all of us. And we're thankful for God's protection for Sophie and Nolan and for the whole family as well. Look forward to um, just seeing Nolan grow up into a godly man in the future. And as Bob shared, Elder Bob shared, we just came back from the annual Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church. Um, I echo Bob's sentiments exactly. A great time of studying God's Word together, meeting with other pastors, uh, spending time in fellowship with other ministers of the gospel. Probably for me, two highlights. Um, first highlight would be to see um, R.C. Sproul and MacArthur in the fall season of their lives being faithful to the Word of God. Uh, Sproul had a stroke a few months ago, and so... He's somewhat disoriented and uh, has a hard time focusing on the right side. Uh, his vision on the right side is somewhat distorted. And they asked us not to take flash pictures because it gives him vertigo. And uh, he was somewhat sick as well. And he was coughing through his messages. And you see MacArthur and um, he senses a little bit more frail than, than years past. But they were just preaching away, you know, hour, hour 15. <laughs> they were just going on, just proclaiming the Word of God, and um, especially Sproul, just to hammer to us Romans 1 on God's glory and majesty and uh, the power of the gospel and God's sovereignty, and to see him cough through it, you know, that was really challenging to me as a young pastor. You know, I do pray that God would, the grace that sustained Silvana would sustain me when I'm 65, 70 years old, and I will not depart from the path of Scripture, left or to the right, that I pray, and you who pray, pray for me, that I would stay the course. 
in life and doctrine. That was a real highlight for me. Another highlight was seeing a lot of these seminarians uh, and graduates, how they're ministering throughout the world. The, it was, the conference was so um, huge, so many uh, signed up that all the seminarians and professors had to sit in the overflow room at the gym rather than the main worship center. And, you know, uh, second day I, I went to the gym because I wanted to sit with the seminarians. You know, I wanted to sit with the professors. Um, just being around these guys, these young guys, you know, just like chain dogs want to go after ministry, already encourages me. Just sitting around them, rubbing shoulders with the professors, it's really uh, inspiring from my heart. And there was a guy in front of me, we graduated together, and I asked him what he's doing in ministry. It was really good to see each other, and we're, and we're uh, really happy to see one another. And he was telling me he does ministry with the underground church in China. He goes there several times a year, um, doing Bible institutes like we've done in Penza in Kazakhstan for three weeks at a time. And because there is such a need, he teaches from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. with one hour lunch break. And he's just going, going, going to just hundreds of people gathered to learn theology and doctrine. He says that when they pick him up, he doesn't know where he's, where he's going. It's a secluded um, a place. And when they're there, everybody has code, code names. Because in case he gets arrested, he can't rat on anybody. So people's names are like Paul, Moses, Joseph, Priscilla, Barnabas. So I told them, you know, I have my code name ready. So if I can go along, tag along in the future. My code name is Maximus, Bob. I'll take that. <laughs> you know, I'll take that for, for me. And, and uh, he said, yeah, maybe next year there'll be a spot open for me to go along and uh, minister to underground uh, Chinese believers. I mean, that'd be great, wouldn't it? So if you guys want to go, you know, let me know. Maybe we'll go together. Give you a code name as well. <laughs> go together. Well, great. Well, it seems like it was several weeks ago I preached on Daniel 9. I don't know how your week was, but my week seems like this week was like a few months. I can't almost remember Daniel 9, but it was only seven days ago we um, did a deep study in Daniel chapter 9. Well, we're going to come back to John 12 and continuing our study concerning our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem. And to kind of set that up for everyone, I want to begin with an article that I read a few months ago about a scientific study that revealed that when someone is rejected in a social context, the pain is not just emotional, it's not just mental, but it's actually physical. Did you guys read this article on CNN? Yahoo or Journal of American Medicine? No, you guys haven't read that? These uh, professors from UCLA set up a brain imaging scan. Uh, They used a functional magnetic imaging of 13 volunteers to find out how their brains respond to rejection. So these 13 volunteers were put in a room. They were given a task, simple task, to pass the ball to each other. I'm a group of three and four. And there was a person from the test in that group. And um, as time went on, for 45 times, they would pass the ball and they would exclude one person while the imaging uh, was run on his brain. And they said it was painful to see. After about 10 times, he would be like, okay, give me the ball. I'm ready for the ball. And they would not give it to him. About 25 times, like, you could see it visually in his face. Like, why aren't you passing me the ball? After about 35 times, some of them were literally to the point of tears. They were just setting themselves up and nobody would give them the ball. 
and experiment, um, Dr. Lieberman said that this really affects the person afterwards. Uh, we found that there was a sickening, almost painful feeling in the stomach. And the brain imaging shows that social rejection was equal to getting kicked in the gut. Right? So their conclusion was that there's a visceral pain when you're rejected. When someone rejects you, it really hurts you. End quote. Now, I read that article, and well, that's really insightful, you know, but I don't know if I needed a scientific study to tell me that rejection hurts, right? All you men out there who've been rejected in your life, you know what that's like. You don't need to go to UCLA to find out. You can just look at your old photo albums and find out what it feels like to be rejected. I mean, it really hurts. That's why human beings were averse to rejection. We go to great lengths to avoid any kind of rejection as much as possible. Well, as we look at John chapter 12, we must understand that our Lord came to Jerusalem for exactly that reason. He came to be rejected. He came to be hated. He came to be tortured, to be cast off, and to be crucified on the cross. He didn't come to Jerusalem seeking praise, worship, adoration, seeking to be embraced and made her king. He knew that as he heard the crowds chant, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He knew that their worship, their outward adoration was shallow, it was fleeting, it was temporal, and this was a fickle crowd. He understood that within five days, he would be suffering at their very hands and die an awful death at the cross. He was a willing sufferer. He came to do God's will, to be the substitute for our sins. He died so that the lost and ruined souls might be saved and redeemed. No one took His life. He laid it down. He did not bleed and suffer and, and die because He was vanquished by a superior force. It wasn't He was helpless before the powers that be. No, he gave himself for this, to this because he loved the Father and he rejoiced to die in our place. He didn't die because he could not avoid death. No, he came for that very purpose. Let us make sure we have this firmly embedded in our minds that we have the most willing and loving Savior. It was a volitional suffering, a volitional death. It was His delight to do the Father's will. He loved the work that He was given. He loved the poor sinful world which He came to save. You know, our Lord is a, a willing Savior in two ways. He's a willing Savior in that He willingly suffered and died, but also... He's a willing Savior in that He's willing to save all those who would come to Him. After He suffered and died, and this morning, He's not looking at us with scorn. If you're not covered by the blood of Christ, if you're not a believer, He's not looking at you with contempt, with indignation, frustration, and wrath. No, this morning, He's looking upon you with compassion, mercy, and pity. His willingness to go on the cross 
is equaled only by His willingness that sinners today might be saved. Let me consider that again. Just think about that. The willingness of Christ that He has today, sitting at the right hand of God, that sinners might be saved. I mean, I, I thought about that and I said, that is why our Lord is so beautiful. That is why to me, Jesus is lovely. That is why to me, He is precious. Because He suffered and died and He's not angry at the sinners who caused it. No, it's the opposite. He prays for us. He prays for them. And He has compassion on the lost and desires that they might be saved. Oh, the beauty of Christ. May we see this truth and go away and grow in our appreciation, grow in our adoration and our cherishing of the person of Jesus Christ. And you know, that is the grand purpose of our study of the Gospel of John. Really, that's it. You know, we're studying in the book of James, in our epistle of James, that we ought to be doers of God's Word. And I agree with that 100%. That as we study truth, study doctrine, we need to go away and practically apply these truths to the very mundane, practical areas of our lives. But at the same time, my purpose in studying the Gospel of John is not for application's sake. It is not that we might go home and do a certain thing for the Lord. Really, my ultimate purpose in studying the Gospel of John for my own study and for everyone here is that we would conclude the study of John and we would step back and see the beauty of Christ. And we would not write down application 1, application 2, application 3. It, it, it would be that we would step back and just, just love Christ more. We would, we would see the beauty of Christ in a greater way. We would grow in our knowledge and understanding of the loveliness of Jesus Christ. With every word, every verse, every passage, every chapter of our study in the Gospel of John, that is our ultimate application. That our soul will be exceedingly ravished as we look upon the beauty of Christ that is revealed in the Gospel of John. And that our souls will be so ravished that we will never grow weary of Him. We would never ever grow weary of, or tired of Christ. And we would hunger, a growing thirst for the Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. Pastor John Flavel wrote this. Christ is for the believers because He is the very essence of all delights and pleasures. He is the very soul and substance of all of them, meaning delights and pleasures. As all the rivers in the world are gathered into the ocean, which is the meeting place of all the waters in the world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. End quote. That is my prayer, that is my hope, um, that He would become more dear to us than sin that we will love Christ, desire Christ, consider Christ more attractive to us than sin, than anything in this world. Well, with that, turn with me, if you haven't done so, to John chapter 12. And in verse 12, again, we find ourselves thrust into an important time of our Lord's life and ministry. We find our Lord entering His last week on earth. 
He is five days removed from the cross in John chapter 12. He is coming to Jerusalem for the last time. He's made, he's made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem all his life. From as a child with his parents, he made this pilgrimage. And he's coming now for the very last time. You understand? He's coming to suffer and now to die. He knew this. He warned his disciples repeatedly, Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, that he must suffer in the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and that also that he would be raised on the third day to life. Our Lord knew he was entering his last week, being led by his father like a sheep to the slaughter. This is the final drama of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the timing of it is very important. The time is the early Jewish Passover, the most important feast for the Jewish nation. It commemorated the redemption of the nation of Israel from Egypt. It commemorated that event, the historical event, when the angel of death came upon the nation of Egypt and killed the first offspring male, of everyone in that land, except for those that had the blood of the Lamb marked on the doorpost. And when the angel of death came upon Egypt and they, they saw the blood, the angel of death would pass over that household and that first son would be spared. Every year after that, the nation of Israel celebrated the Passover feast, remembering that God would one day again send the Lamb that would save them not from physical death, but from spiritual death. So Jewish law stated that all adult males within 20 miles radius of Jerusalem were required to make a pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem for Passover. But because it was such an important feast, pilgrims from all over the empire made this journey. 30 years after our Lord's death, a Roman governor took a census of the number of lambs that were slaughtered during one Passover. The number surpassed 250,000 lambs. A quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered in that one Passover feast. Jewish law required that at most 10 Jews share one lamb. So simple math tells us that the population of Jerusalem swelled to over 2 million people in an area not bigger than Cyprus, California, in a matter of a few days. I mean, a quarter of a million lambs, that's a, that's a lot of animals. Historians say that roads ran red with blood of these slaughtered animals. The ravines and lake beds also ran red with blood. In fact, the altar, the temple, and the Levites who performed the ceremonies were drenched in blood as lamb after lamb was sacrificed. I mean, the Levites were literally knee-deep in blood. A graphic picture of the seriousness of sin and the great price of atoning for sin. It was to such a city that our Lord was entering on this fateful day. As we discovered last week, this was not just any Passover our Lord's entry was according to God's prophetic timeline. Remember Daniel 9, 24, 27. The angel Gabriel promised, prophesied that in 69 sevens, 
In 483 years, the anointed one will appear and he will be cut off. That 483 year timeline begins with King Artaxerxes' decree in Nehemiah 2 when he commands Nehemiah to rebuild, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that was in 444 B.C., the fourth day of the month of Nisan. So if you add, and we did this calculation last week, remember that? You know, we don't want to get into the details again. I might lose some, some that I had last week. But in summary, if you add 483 years, according to the prophetic timeline of 30 days a month, it's a lot of days. If you add, it would you come to the 10th day of the month of Nisan, 33 AD. What day is that? That day is Palm Sunday. Five days before Passover. That is the day that John records in John chapter 12. Our Lord, by entering on that exact day, fulfilled the prophecy made in Daniel 9. It was made in Babylon almost 500 years before this event, proving Himself once again that He is the promised one. And you know, in this text, that is not the only prophecy that is fulfilled. In John 12, 9-19, there is just so much here. There is so much truth to be unearthed and excavated. Um, but I just want to focus our remaining time with just looking at three things. Looking at three things. I want to look at the forest and then point out two trees. Okay? I want to take a step back. And this account of our Lord's entry into Jerusalem is recorded by all four gospel writers. I have synthesized all their accounts. So we want to take a step back and see from the beginning to the end what all the four gospel writers have to say about this historical event. Look at the forest. After we've done that, I want to point out two trees, two particulars, and highlight the significance um, according to the scriptures. So first, let's take, a, let's take a step back and look at the big picture. Our Lord's entry into Jerusalem from start to finish. You'll find Matthew's account in chapter 21, Mark's account in chapter 11, Luke's account in chapter 19, and John's account in chapter 12. 21, 11, 19, and 12. These accounts differ, but they do not contradict each other. They are complementary. By considering all four accounts, we get a full picture of the day's events. Piecing together the four gospel accounts, we discover the following truths, following historical facts about this entry. Now picture this, if you will. Jerusalem sits on a mount. Um, north, south, east, and west. The temple sits on the southern side of the city of Jerusalem. There's an eastern gate that leads directly to the temple. Right? North, south, east, west. There's an eastern gate that leads directly to the Gentile courts. That goes down to the Kidron Valley on the eastern side. On the other side of the valley is the Mount of Olives. That's where Gethsemane is. That's where the garden near Gethsemane is. That's where Christ prayed 
and, and, and grieved and, and was sorrowful to the point of death, according to Matthew 26. Bethany is about two miles outside of the western slope of Mount of Olives. This is where our Lord is staying. Bethphage is a suburb of Jerusalem around the area of Mount of Olives. So our Lord is two miles away in Bethany. And He begins His journey towards Jerusalem on this Sunday. But verse 9 tells us that before He even made this journey, you know, word got out, right? People heard, right? They didn't have phones, they didn't have email, but they had, I guess, they had women, I guess, right? So, word got out. I don't know where that came from, but, right? Word got out, somehow. And people in Jerusalem heard that Jesus is in Bethany with Lazarus, and presumably Mary and Martha are with them, and they're coming towards Jerusalem. Well, they've heard about Lazarus rising from the grave. They're astounded at this miracle. And so a large crowd who had came early to Jerusalem for the Passover made this journey to see Jesus at Bethany. And so we see this large group of people making their way towards Jerusalem. And as they go toward, as they ascend the, the western slope of the Mount of Olives, our Lord tells disciples to go ahead to Bethpage, this suburb, and you will find, Matthew 21 records this, a donkey tied there with her colt by her. And I wasn't raised in the farm. What is a colt? I mean, what exactly is that? Is that, is it a horse? I mean, what is that? Well, Colt, her colt means the donkey's offspring. Female donkey's offspring. Right? That makes sense to you. Hopefully it does. Christ says you will find two animals. One will be a donkey. One will be a colt. That was the offspring of the donkey, a female. When you find that, bring those two animals to me. And if anyone asks you, just simply say, the Lord needs them. Well, the disciples do that. They come back. They bring these two animals. And our Lord chooses to sit on the colt, the female child, rather than the donkey itself. Fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. We'll study that later. So as they're ascending the western slope of the Mount of Olives, the crowds are merging into one. The crowds are cheering. The crowd that was with Christ are ascending the Mount of Western Slope. And there are more pilgrims who had arrived in the night, heard of Jesus coming. They're coming out of the Eastern Gate, going down the Kidron Valley, and they're going up the Mount of Olives, the Eastern Slope, the Western Slope, and they're meeting Christ at the apex of the Mount of Olives. So by this time, there's a huge crowd of people welcoming Jesus Christ. Our Lord, His twelve disciples, Lazarus is there. Again, Mary and Martha are most likely there. The group that was with, with them in Bethany, a host of pilgrims who are arriving in Jerusalem, they all converge together on the Mount of Olives. And understandably, enthusiasm is at a fever pitch as this crowd grows. The multitudes start to take off their cloaks and lay them along the road as Christ is riding past. 
other pilgrims cut the branches off the palm trees and lay them down in honor and worship of Christ as He enters Jerusalem. And they all began to sing in unison, shout out in unison. Matthew 21, Luke 19 records this. Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Blessed is the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of our father David. Peace in heaven and glory in highest. I mean, they are chanting, they are screaming, they are singing repeatedly. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Luke 19, 39 tells us, and as the Pharisees heard this, they were beside themselves. I mean, their, their, their anger was boiling over. And they, and they can't stand it any longer. So they told Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Do you not know that they're committing blasphemy? They're praising you, worshiping you as God? Jesus responded, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Don't you realize this is such truth? This is such truth that if I stop them, all creation, they're longing to declare this truth, the stones would cry out. Or they reach the apex of the Mount of Olives and they're descending on the western slope and uh, by God's just providence, my wife and I were able to go to Israel a few years ago and we actually walked down the Mount of Olives, the western slope. And as you go above the apex, all of a sudden, the city of Jerusalem comes into view. It's a beautiful sight. It is glorious. I'm sure you've seen postcards or pictures or National Geographic or somewhere. A picture of, of Jerusalem. The city of David. The city of God. It's a glorious picture. What is Christ's response? His response was not one of joy. These pilgrims take that long trek and that's the way there was the one road coming towards Jerusalem was through the Mount of Olives. So all the, the, the pilgrims would sing Psalm 121 through 135 and as they would take steps, they would sing these pilgrim psalms and when they see Jerusalem, it was their heart's joy. But what was Christ's response? His response was intense sorrow because He knew he would be rejected by the city. And therefore, they would come under the judgment of God the Father. Luke 19.41 As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. There is a church today that commemorates the general area where Christ saw the city. It's called the Church of Tears. And it's shaped like a teardrop. And you enter into that church and there's a big glass window where you see the whole picture of the city. And they say, this is what Christ saw when He wept, when He cried over the city. And our Lord said, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if you had only known. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment in embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. End quote. 
That's 33 AD. Herod's temple will be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. God said, if you had only known who was coming to you, but because you failed to see it, you will be destroyed. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, the whole city, the entire city is stirred. In Matthew 21, verse 10, the whole city was asking, who is this? Who is this man? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Once Christ enters the eastern gates of the temple, where does he go? He goes right towards the money changers and the merchants. This is the second time he does this in the ministry. Did you guys know there's a two, there's, Christ cleanses the temple two times? In John chapter 2, and the last time he enters the, the, the temple here in John 12. Matthew 21 records this. Jesus entered the temple area. He drove out all who are buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He cast them out. The zeal for his house consumed him. It was unbridled passion. It was boiling over. It was righteous anger and indignation at what was occurring at this holy place. And then, the most unexpected thing happens. The most beautiful thing happens. Verse 13, our Christ kicks out the money changers, those who are selling animals. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. What a beautiful picture. He casts everyone out. And who comes to Christ? Those who are sick, those who are blind, those who are, are, are paralyzed. Those who are deaf, they approach Christ. And how does Christ respond to them? He heals them. The children seeing the healing cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. When the chief priests, teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin heard this, they were angry again. Matthew twenty-one sixteen. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Jesus said, yes, I hear them. Have you never read... From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. God has ordained this, that these children would praise my name. And he left them that day. He again left the city over the Mount of Olives, two miles away, the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. That is the big picture overview of Palm Sunday. We just saw the forest from beginning to the end. I want to, in our journey to this forest, point out two trees to you. We want to stop here at this first tree and look at it a little closer. We passed it by pretty quickly on our journey through here, but let's stop here and look at this tree more carefully. This first tree is found in verse 13. And it's a tree called Hosanna. tree called Hosanna. Remember, as Christ began to rise the city, the multitude spread their garments in the road. It was a common thing, common custom for citizens to throw their garments in the road for their monarch to ride over. It symbolized their respect for the monarch, also their respect and reverence for him. It was as if to say, 
we place ourselves at your feet, even for you to walk over us if necessary. While they were putting their garments along the way of Christ, putting down the palm branches, the crowds were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This comes from Psalm 118. One of six Messianic Psalms. Psalm 118. It is one of those pilgrim psalms. A psalm that an Israelite would sing as they approached Jerusalem and as they approached the temple of God. They would have this psalm memorized and they would sing it, meditate upon it as they approached God's holy city. They sang it every year, but this year there was a, there was a special significance because Christ Himself, the Messiah, the King, was entering the city and they were crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna is Hebrew for save us now. It is a declarative word. It is an imperative. It is almost a command. It is a request of the highest passion, crying out, Save us! Save us, King, Son of David! With the emphasis on the immediacy, Save us now! They are crying out, Hosanna! So when we sing Hosanna at church, that's what we're saying, Lord, save us! Save us, please! Deliver us, ransom us, redeem us. Now, in this group, there were two, two groups of people, actually. One group, they were singing Hosanna, and they were saying, save us politically. Save us physically. Save us for the here and now. Come into the temple, come into the city, and, and release us from the shackle of those Roman oppressors. Give us political freedom. Give us sovereignty as a nation. Give us autonomy once again. Like Saul, like David, like Solomon, unite the kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Make us one nation once again and be our king. Be our military ruler. They had no clue of our Lord's true mission. For them, our Lord was a pawn to be used for their own purposes. They had an agenda, and Christ was to serve their agenda. There was a minority group here, and they were the ones who understood. They were the ones who believed. They were the ones who knew the truth. With their hearts broken and mourning over sin, when they were crying out, Hosanna, save us now, they were not saying, save us from Rome, or save us from trials or hardship or difficulties. They were crying out, save us from sin. Save us from the most cruel oppressor, oppressors, sin and death. Redeem us, ransom us. Well, that's the first tree. Let's go to the second tree. And this tree is called Zechariah. Tree called Zechariah. Look at Zechariah. Um, let's go to Zechariah chapter 9, Old Testament. It's uh, the last, it's the third from the last book of the Old Testament. Right? It's um, one of the minor prophets. It's right a few books before Matthew. Chapter 9, verse 9. It is one of the three post-exilic books of the minor prophets. This is why I went to seminary. 
so I could pronounce these hard words, right? And know what they mean. One of the three post-exilic books. What does that mean? That these books were written after the exiles came back from Babylon. Right? It's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. Old Testament scholars say that this is the most messianic of all Old Testament books. In just 14 chapters, it contains eight specific references to the Messiah, to the coming of the Messiah. For example, if you're in Zechariah, turn with me to chapter 12. Verses 10 through 14. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. I would say this is the only place in all of the Old Testament that alludes to the two comings of the Messiah. The two comings of the Messiah. The great perplexion, the great question for the Old Testament uh, Bible students was the Messiah has come. Why isn't the kingdom restored? In, Current Jews, one of the main reasons they reject Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, is because if Christ had come, Israel would be restored. The kingdom would have been restored to Israel. He would reign. But because that didn't happen, Jesus can't be the Messiah. This was a question the disciples had in Acts 1.6. After the resurrection, disciples gathered to Jesus and their question was this, Lord... Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because in the Old Testament, except for Zechariah 12, it only describes only one coming of the Messiah. But here, we see the two comings of the Messiah. The New Testament tells us that, but I believe here's the only Old Testament verse that tells us of the two comings. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This is talking about the future. The Lord says, they will look upon me, the one whom they have pierced. When did they pierce Christ? It happened in the Gospels. So in light of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, it's pointing to a future time when Christ comes back. The nation of Jerusalem, nation of Israel, the Jewish people will see Christ. And they will see the one whom they had pierced. And they would grieve. They would mourn. They would be sorrowful. Verse, verse 11, On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Verse 12, The land will mourn. Each clan will be huddled by themselves. Each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The, clan, the house of David and their wives. The clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. All the clans, all their wives will mourn together as they see Christ whom they had pierced. pointing to the second coming of the Messiah. The first coming, He came to suffer. He came to die on the cross. He came to serve. The second coming, He will come in glory. 
power and majesty. And at that time, all Israel will see him and they will mourn. We'll go back to a few chapters and we will see our Lord fulfilling the prophecy made about him in chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah, I'm sure, was confused as he was writing this. I'm sure he was thinking to himself, what am I saying here? This makes no sense, absolutely. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Children of Zion, rejoice. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and salvation, and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This is written about 500 years before um, Christ's entrance. Here is Zechariah prophesying the Messiah coming in a certain manner. Zechariah says, Here he comes, not a king, not the king, but your king, the king of Israel. He is righteous. He is just. But at the same time, he has with him salvation. He is the just and the justifier. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans 3, 26. That God is the just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. That's the manner of his arrival. He is completely righteous, but he also has salvation in his hands. And then, he is humble. He is mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the fowl of a donkey. The Hebrew word humble here expresses the condition of one who is brought low, who is bowed down. He is lowliness of mind, submission to God, humble piety. And his humility, his, his contriteness, his lowliness, his gentleness is depicted by the manner of his coming. He is coming riding on a donkey. It seems totally inappropriate for any king to ride on a donkey, much less the king of kings, the lord of lords. But that's how he enters. It seems absurd. You know, President Bush was staying at the Biltmore Hotel in L.A. this weekend, or a few days ago. And it would be like President Bush coming into L.A., you know, riding a, and I apologize, you know, if you tried this car, but riding a Honda Civic. Right? That'd be absurd. You're the president of the most powerful nation in the whole world. What are you doing in a Honda Civic DX? Right? Maybe an EX, but not DX, come on. What are you doing? Well, that's what our Lord is doing. He's walking, he's riding in, not on a horse, as a mighty warrior, a general, who has conquered and won a victory. He's riding on a donkey, a humble animal, an animal of peace points to his um, assignment, points to his mission. He's coming as a prince of peace, as it is written. He is saying, this city is at war with the king of kings. This city is in rebellion. This city is under judgment. God the Father is angry, and I have come as a mediator. I have come to bring peace. I have come to give my life 
so that the inhabitants of the city will not incur the judgment of God, the wrath of God, that they might be saved, that they might be redeemed. A commentator wrote, quote, He did not come to reign in earthly power or splendor. He did not come in wealth but poverty. He did not come in grandeur but in meekness. He did not come to slay Israel but to save all mankind. The incarnation was a time of his, of his humiliation. His time for His glorification is still yet to come. He enters as a prince of peace. Well, the scene is set. Our Lord has entered Jerusalem for the last time. And in our study in the Gospel of John, we are now entering the holiest week in all of human history. The Passion Week has now started. He retreats into private ministry from this point on. Next week we'll study our Lord's teaching on discipleship. In John 13, we'll see our Lord wash the feet of His disciples. In 14 through 17, we'll see our Lord's upper room discourse, teaching His disciples about heaven, about the coming Holy Spirit, the paraclete who will come and counsel and help. He teaches disciples about how the world will hate them, but how they must abide in the vine, bearing fruit, proving that they are true disciples. We will study in, in 16 and 17 what true love for Christ really means. What true love for one another means, the unity that Christ died for. And then with 18, we'll enter His sufferings, His torture, and His death. Chapter 20, the resurrection. Chapter 21, Peter's restoration. All of that happens in five days. And it starts right here. Well, just to close our time, I know we've said a lot. But I want to just point to those two trees that we looked at. The tree of Hosanna. When you sing at church, when you pray at home, do you know who you are praying to and why you are praying. Are you saying, Lord, save me now? And you're thinking about the travails and hardships of, of this life. Save us from difficulties in this side of eternity. Then you're missing the point. Believers ask for salvation from sin and death. Our Lord, believers understand our Lord's purpose is a ransom to propitiate us, to expiate our sins, and to be the propitiation for our sins, to be our substitute. Which group are you in this morning? Are you crying out to Christ as a believer or as an unbeliever? Our Lord came humble and gentle, riding on a colt, that He might bring peace between you and God. If you're not a Christian, you're at war with God. You're at rebellion with God. God is angry with you. It's a terrifying thought that, that there's only one end left to your future, and that is utter destruction. 
eternity in hell, separate from God, because he is holy, because he is just. Well, Christ came to bring peace. He came to, to, for reconciliation, to reconcile you to the Holy Father. It requires that you would believe in Him, that you would believe in Him for your sins, that you would repent, renounce your sins once for all, that you might be saved. Jerusalem welcomed Christ, but it was a false welcome. It was all external. They didn't welcome them in their hearts. Well, what about you this morning? Are you welcoming Christ outwardly, but in your heart, you're not welcoming Him? He has no place in your heart. Will you this morning open your heart and embrace Him and trust Him so that you might be reconciled to God the Father? Our Heavenly Father, we understand that we're treading on holy ground as we come to the closing chapters of John's Gospel. Lord, we can hear the crowds. We can see Jerusalem. We can even see the Lord entering the city, riding on a donkey. But Lord, help us to grasp the spiritual significance of this event. Lord, we pray that our Lord is not weeping for anyone here this morning. Lord, we pray that our Lord is not crying because there is someone here who sees the outward events, but they fail to grasp who it is that is being proclaimed to them, that in their hearts they are rejecting the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would open hearts this morning. Allow the lost to grasp spiritual truth and thus be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.